TheOAMNetwork.com. Power to the podcast. On Friday, December 22nd, the president signed the First Step Act, a criminal justice reform bill that passed Congress with broad and rare bipartisan support. While this legislative achievement drew praise from political partisans on both the right and the left, the exact implications of the bill's specific provisions are not really widely understood. The First Step Act, while commendable, is only that, a first step and one that took immense political pressure over many, many years to reach. It's a mistake to label it as sweeping reform when the vast majority of prisoners in this country are in state and local facilities, and it's telling that the marginal reforms to the federal system in this bill are the most far-reaching in a generation. Nevertheless, the First Step Act represents a major fork in the road in our country's conversation about crime and punishment. So what does this step mean for incarcerated people, for law enforcement, for reform advocates like us at Just City? And what are the next steps we need to take? In the next few episodes of The Permanent Record, we're going to speak with several experts on the policies and the politics of the First Step Act and what it means when we're looking to build a more just city. Our first guest in this series is Mark Holden. General Counsel of Coke Industries. Since joining Coke Industries in 1995, Mark has been a consistent voice for the kinds of criminal justice reforms typically reserved for progressives and their allies. He's been one of the First Step Act's most visible and outspoken proponents. We asked him to help us understand the finer points of the First Step Act and where his personal and professional interests intersect on issues of justice reform. Thanks, Mark Holden, for joining us. We appreciate you making the time during this uh, busy season. Thank you for having me. Very excited to be here. Happy holidays to everybody. Thanks. So, so set us up. Talk to us about some of the highlights, uh, the important parts of the First Step Act, which was very recently signed by the president and uh, becomes law now. Yeah, well, I mean, it, the fact that we were able to get a comprehensive criminal justice reform bill through the United States House and United States Senate and then past the president's desk is a big deal in and of itself. We haven't had, <clears throat> excuse me, we have not had any comprehensive criminal justice reform um, uh, that is making our system more restorative and more redemptive rather than more punitive. So this is a first and everybody should be excited about that. That alone is a big deal. That alone is a huge deal when you've got Republican Congress and a Republican president doing it. And maybe it just had to be that way, um, kind of like Nixon going to China situation, given the history of criminal justice reform issues or criminal justice issues at the federal level. And so what this bill does, kind of broad broad scope here, would be, first of all, it um, there, there's a prison reform element and then there's sentencing reform. And the whole idea of the prison reform is to uh, focus on rehabilitating people, making them better while in prison. And this only applies to federal prisons. Um, so there's about 180, 190,000 people there in the federal system, 40,000 or more of them are coming out each year. And that's one of the things that people uh, don't always focus on or understand that, you know, 90 plus of the people in prisons, both state and federal, they're all coming back in. And so it's very important that we try to do something with them to make them better so they don't come out, as Van Jones says, bitter and not better. Um, they come out. Uh, rehabilitated. Uh, maybe they've you know, gone through some therapy, drug therapy, cognitive therapy. Uh, maybe they've taken something that helps them become less violent um, and, and, and have anger management issues uh, being taken care of. Maybe it's education programs. 
vocational training programs. You know, the data shows these programs, particularly education and vocational training programs. Um, there was a study back in 2013 by the Department of Justice that they did a pilot program, and it, it for every dollar spent on these in-prison education programs, it defrays up to $6 of future incarceration costs. And the individuals who took advantage of those classes and learned were almost 50% less likely to recidivate, to return to prison. And that's a big deal. And what, what we've done here in the federal bill, the First Step Act, is for the states. What the states have been doing now, Tennessee included, over the past 10 to 15 years, the whole prison reform is based on what's worked in the states. And the states have reformed their systems over the past 10 to 15 years to make them less punitive and more rehabilitative. And it's really worked. And it makes sense because when people come out of prison and have skills, they can then use those skills to have a real job and not, you know, not be in a situation where they're warehoused. And when they come out of prison, they just go back to their old ways. And the recidivism rates are anywhere, depending on how they're measured, in our country, anywhere from 30% up to 60% of people or 70% return to prison within five years. And that's completely unacceptable. Um, it keeps communities. Um, so, so the whole idea is these programs that help people get rehabilitated it makes communities safer, keeps law enforcement safer, um, it gives people a second chance, and it ends up at the end of the day saving a lot of money, right. which can then be used for other purposes. So right. that's important. That's one part of the bill. And the other part of the bill, um, the First Step Act, has four sentencing reforms that make a lot of sense that are focused mostly on low-level nonviolent offenders so they don't get these really long mandatory minimums and can end up either being, you know, on probation potentially, or out of the, or, or not in prison for a long time, um, as opposed to getting five or ten or fifteen years. And we think that makes a lot of sense too. Brandon, give us some of the numbers around those the sentencing aspect of this reform. What are the projections on uh, the number of people this will impact immediately and over the next, uh, say, decade? Well, I mean, it's hard to know for sure. Some of the, on the first step back part of it, um, there's going to be uh, with the prison reform. Uh, they're going, there's a fix in there. It was supposed to be for good time credits. So for people who kept their uh, nose clean and did the right thing in prison, it would be about, um, um, it, it, you're supposed to get 55, 54 days each year off, basically. And BOP, the Bureau of Prisons, had uh, done a regulation and a calculation to put that 54 to 47 days for some reason. And Congress has now said retroactively, we're going to go with the original law. Uh, the 54 days. And that'll free up anywhere from 2,000 to 4,000 people. It'll basically accelerate their re-entry into society by a few months. Um, so that'll be two to 4,000 people in the federal system. Um, <clears throat> there are some estimates in, in, the, in, the, the, um, in, in the sentencing reform themselves. There's only one that's retroactive. That's the Fair Sentencing Act retroactivity. And there's an estimate that could be at least 3,000 people. The Fair Sentencing Act, you may recall, was passed in 2010, and in that law, they took the difference between crack cocaine and powder cocaine, which back in the 90s when that mandatory minimum came out, it was 100 to 1. Um, uh, so you, if you had crack cocaine, it was, it was treated 100 times more severely than powder cocaine. There's really no difference between powder or crack cocaine, but there was a lot of issues uh, in communities where people felt the need to make it much more dire sanctions against people smoking crack cocaine, dealing crack cocaine. Well, in 2010, they took it from 100 to 1 to 18 to 1, meaning they, they lessened 
the um, severity of the punishments. But that was only prospective. Right. So for people who did the same exact crime, they didn't get any relief. Well, this will now give those folks relief. They have to petition for it. They have to have a clean record besides the um, uh, the issue that they ended up in prison for with crack cocaine. Um, and then they'll go before a judge and a, there'll be a prosecutor involved uh, and a lawyer for the individual. So that could be 3,000 or more people. Um, going forward with some of the other reforms, it's hard to say. I, there's been some estimates, but one of the sentencing reforms expands the drug safety valve. You may recall uh, in the, drug, the, the original drug safety valve allowed judges discretion to not give someone a mandatory minimum if they had, um, if the judge thought it made sense in their discretion and um, if the person had no more than one historical criminal history point. Mm-hmm. Now, <clears throat> that, that was great, but there's a lot of people who have more um, more touches with the system uh, and have up to four points potentially who are still low-level nonviolent offenders, they'll now potentially be able to get relief. The judge doesn't have to give them relief, but they have the the ability to do it. So that could be a big deal as well. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thanks for that uh, rundown. And, um, I appreciate you. You're, you're clearly uh, very, very well informed on, on what's happened here. And so I want to ask you uh, why that is. I mean, when when we say Coke Industries, and, and particularly for an audience probably like this one, it's, it's a progressive leaning audience uh, here in Memphis, but uh, uh, it, it probably evokes a certain response. And um, and what you've just described to us, though, is, is clearly... Um, probably not what some would expect. So so why did you get involved in this? Why does Coke Industries care uh, about this type of reform, um, not just on the federal level, but I'm sure that you're concerned and involved at the state level where most criminal justice policy is uh, is implemented anyway. So why did Coke Industries and, and the Coke brothers and you get involved in this uh, when, uh, you know, your your name and <laughs> and some of your, your other uh, impacts have, have drawn such ire uh, from the other other folks who are involved in this kind of reform. Yeah, well, I mean, for us, it, it's uh, all about removing barriers to opportunity in our society and helping people succeed and reach their full potential. And we look at different systems in our country that are keeping people from succeed. And you can look at education programs, K through 12 education programs that in some communities don't work. Uh, you can look at certain occupational licensing rules that hurt the least advantage. But a major impediment in our country to people uh, succeeding over the past 30 or 40 years now, more than a generation, has been the criminal justice system. Um, it's created various opportunity, and it really, it, in, in a lot of ways, it most entraps the least among us. Because as Brian Stevenson said, the author of Just Mercy, an amazing person, uh, he says, as he says, there's a, we have a two-tiered justice system. We have tiered systems in our society. But we have a two-tiered justice system that's based on resources. And if you're, as he says, if you're rich and guilty, you're going to get a better deal than the poor and the innocent. Um, If if you don't have resources in our system, um, sometimes, unfortunately, guilt and innocence can be somewhat um, meaningless because you're just going to end up having to plead to something to get yourself out of jail pre-trial for, um, you you can't pay a cash bail amount or what have you. So we want a system that's based on equal justice and equal rights, and it really ends up enhancing and protecting public safety and giving people second chances. So that's why we're interested in the criminal justice reform uh, area in particular, because we've seen over the past 30 or 40 years how it's really just not 
met the mark. It does a lot of things that are admirable in our criminal justice system, but by and large, when you get to the uh, meat of it, it really ends up being a poverty trap. And there are estimates at if we had not, um, particularly with the over-incarceration and the war on drugs, which, again, the war on drugs is about abject failure, an unmitigated failure, in my opinion. But there's a, it was an estimate a few years ago, a study by Villanova University, had we not over-incarcerated so many people, poverty could have probably been 20% more or less, uh, 20% less than it is now, which is something we're, we're focused on, too. We'd, we'd love to see the poverty rates go down in this country. So it's really because of that, um, those issues, these breaking barriers to opportunity that we're so focused on criminal justice reform. And it's something that impacts everybody. You know, me personally, I grew up in Worcester, Massachusetts. And before I, I went to law school and all that, um, one of the jobs I had was as a prison guard in my hometown to pay for college. And I come from a working class background and a lot of the kids, a lot of the kids I grew up with, um, I lost track of them in junior high and high school. And then we had somewhat of a reunion when I went to work at the prison because they were incarcerated. Wow. And it was one of those there before the grace of God go I moments, but it was also one of these moments where they had broken the law. They'd done something wrong. I get that. But there was like, their lives were over basically at the ages of 18, 19, 20, 21 years old. And back then, there were no rehabilitation programs, and they were mostly drug addicts who ended up doing really dumb things to feed their addiction. And so that didn't sit right with me from a young age either, and it always was one of these things that just didn't make sense and didn't seem that that type of situation, locking people up without any rehabilitation or any programs or any you know, honest opportunity once they got out, it didn't make us safer and it didn't seem just. Yeah. And so um, talk to me about what it takes then to, to move legislation in this day and age. Uh, number one, how how big of a deal is this? And, and the, I mean, I don't think it's a, it's a tough question to answer. <laughs> we can't we can't keep the government open. And, uh, and this Congress and president have now agreed on what's, you know, one of the biggest deals in criminal justice at the federal level in a long time, sadly. So, um, number one, talk about what it took to get it done, but also how does a bill like this come about? How, how were, were you and Coke Industries, if you were involved in its, its crafting, who were the, the primary uh, drivers of that? And, and give us a little bit about the, the politics that brought this to bear. Yeah. I mean, a, a part of the politics are just over the past, like I mentioned earlier, the States have done so many, um, so have have made such progress in criminal justice reform with innovations that keep communities safer and save money and save lives that it's hard for people who come from those states to then get elected to Congress or the Senate to ignore that. I think that's part of what's going on here. But we've been involved in criminal justice reform for several years now, dating back to the, I'd say, 2005, 2006 time period. And we started to get involved in sentencing reform. We worked at the state level. We, we, we work wherever we think we can make a difference based on our comparative advantage uh, in certain jurisdictions if we have um, you know, knowledge there or people there who we know that we can work with uh, to reform certain bills uh, or certain issues like criminal justice reform. We'll work there. But at the federal level, it all started, like in, I think it was like 2014, 2015. Uh, it was around the time when they had the first, it was the Smarter Sentencing Act, which then became the Sentencing Reform and Correction Act, um, which after the 2014 uh, midterms, you, you may recall the flip from uh, Democrat control to Republican control. And it was at that time 
we at Coke started to work more on these issues with the White House. Uh, the Obama administration reached out to us, and I, I started working with them, in particular with Valerie Jarrett, and we had a great relationship. Thought we were going to make progress in 2015, um, getting it across the goal line. That would have been the bill I was talking about, the Sentencing Reform and Correction Act, which had, obviously, by its name, sentencing reform and um, prison reform. And that was uh, Chuck Grassley, Senator Grassley, and uh, Mike Lee, Dick Durbin, were, and John Cornyn and Sheldon Whitehouse were the co-sponsors, basically, of that legislation. And it didn't get across the goal line. It got shut down in the Senate. I uh, made it out of Senate Judiciary, made it out of House Judiciary, but we were heading into 2016, and there just was not a lot of appetite to take up an issue like criminal justice reform at that time by either either chamber, particularly when we had, you know, the presidential elections looming, and we had, you know, um, <clears throat> it was going to end up being Trump against Clinton. Everything just kind of stopped, so to speak, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah. So what happened was after the 2016 elections, a lot of people, uh, particularly uh, the call, our colleagues on the left, our friends on the left who we've worked with for a long time, they felt, I think, that there was no hope for criminal justice reform to happen at the federal level, given how President Trump had run on a law and order uh, agenda. And I never really felt that way. Um, I, people say a lot of things in election uh, campaigns. But I, I knew the personal story of, of uh, Jared Kushner and his family. And obviously, he's a close advisor to the president. Um, so I never really thought it was impossible. I didn't know if it would be likely or not. I, I didn't know even if you know Hillary Clinton had been elected president, whether it would have been the top of the top issue for her to deal with either. But we, um, we were always, as I like to say, hanging around the hoop. You, know, you never know what's going to happen. <laughs> yeah. And so, you know, just things happen in politics. And so this was one of these deals where back in um, summer of 2017, a friend of mine who was working at the White House got me connected with Jared Kushner's team at the Office of American Innovation. And we started to work, talk with them about criminal justice reform legislation, what that would look like. And that led to a number of different meetings with you know, us at Coke and uh, with our, our teams from uh, Freedom Partners and then other organizations as well across the political spectrum um, got involved. And, it ended and who, up who are some of those uh, other organizations, Mark? Well, some of the other organizations, obviously, we had our Right on Crime, the Heritage Foundation, Prison Fellowship, uh, Freedom Works. We had um, Cut 50, which is Van Jones's group. They were a big part of this, a major part. He and Jessica Sloan were just absolute warriors really pushing this through on the left, even though a lot of groups on the left weren't at first in favor of this, but did get did get comfortable with it when the sentencing reform elements were added. So that meant the, um, my good friend Anthony Romero at the ACLU, they, they got on board as well uh, near the end in the past few months to help get it across the goal line. But it was a, it was a bipartisan coalition. Um, many, I mean, I'm leaving out a lot of groups, and that's why I hate naming oh, sure, groups because sure. I always forget the names of some others. But <clears throat> it was bipartisan, and it was truly bipartisan. From you know, you looked at the House bill, which started this whole thing. That was Doug Collins, who's a conservative from Georgia, and Hakeem Jeffries, who's a progressive from uh, New York, and they worked brilliantly and great together. And, and really, you know, everybody was at first, well, this will never pass the House. It'll be a party line vote. And at the House, the first time it went through, it was 360 to 59. And that's when I felt that it had, even though the Senate can be more difficult because you need 60 votes, 
um, my sense was that was hard to ignore a vote like that, how bipartisan it was. And so we got over to the Senate side and to get get the Senate on board, you need 60 votes, as I mentioned, as everybody knows. And part of the issue was that Democrats wanted more than just prison reform. And a lot of conservatives did, too, Mike Lee in particular and Grassley. And so what happened is they added those four sentencing provisions and the president got on board with it. And president getting on board with it was huge. I mean, he really drove this. But who really got him comfortable with it was Jared Kushner. Jared really pushed these issues. And I think that you'll remember the Alice Johnson um, commutation. She's um, uh, from uh, Tennessee. Right. That's right. She's from Memphis. Yeah, she's great. I've been so blessed and lucky to work with her. And I think this is her first Christmas home, and she's with her sisters right now. So I'm very excited for them right now. But I think that that situation really opened President Trump's eyes to the problems with our sentencing laws. I think he thought that people who get life prison, life in prison sentences are the worst of the worst. They've murdered someone. They're terrorists. Whatever it might be, you're a, you're a major drug trafficker. And then when he heard her story and what, you know, Alice was a low-level offender she was offered, like, I think, a three to five year plea bargain. And she exercised her constitutional right, went to trial, she got life. It's insane. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think that hope, that opened federal sentencing laws. And that's what led to those sentencing reforms, him getting it was really an eye open for him. And so <clears throat> once those were in, and it was just a matter of time. And it took some time. It was, it was near the end of the year. And um, you know, the, uh, Peter McConnell has a lot of things to get done by the end of the year in, in right. the Senate. And at first, this wasn't a priority, but we made it just because of how we were able to show the numbers and support. And we saw ultimately the end of it, it was 87 to 12 in the Senate. 87 to 12. You don't get no. post office names <laughs> renamed in the Senate anymore, 87 to 12. And this was criminal justice reform. You know, just bitter and polarized over the past 40 years from, you know, the Willie Horton, the Clinton crime bill era, et cetera. Then it had to go back to the House. And the House bill, the first time I said 360 to 59, I think the second time it was 356 to 48 or 58 or something. Wow. Again, a huge, huge blow. So, I mean, what happened is this is something that it's undeniable given the success in the states that these reforms work. And the federal level it just takes longer. And you have to, as I said earlier, hang around the hoop. You have to grind. I mean, that's that's all of life anyway, is grinding away, never taking no for an answer, just keep coming back. And again, I give a lot of people across the board credit for that, but Jared Kushner in particular got the president on board. I give the president a lot of uh, credit for getting on board and getting very well educated on the issues and problems in it. And I'm thankful for the bipartisan coalition that was built and all the you know both Republican and Democrat elected officials who voted for this. And it gets back to one of Charles Koch's heroes is Frederick Douglass. And Frederick Douglass has a quote, I'll, I'll probably state it, but it's basically, I will unite with anyone to do right and with no one to do wrong. And that's what we need to do in our society more and more. Stop playing you know, shirts against skins. Look at the issues and try to figure out ways to work together. I hope that becomes the lesson of criminal justice reform. We need more reforms there. But a lot of other issues, whether it's you know, DACA and immigration or whatever else, we could probably get things done if we really tried hard to do it and just didn't always just, you know, yell. 
Yeah, one of the things you said uh, a second ago about um, about how this how this happened or, or what, why the landscape may have changed really really intrigued me. You know, in Tennessee, we're one of just a handful of states that actually spending more uh, every year on our prisons, and actually our population is growing. We're one of just a handful of states that that, that trend is headed in that direction, and um, and we have a legislature that has really so far shown little interest in reversing that. Uh, but what you said, I think, if I heard this right, was that a lot of what led to uh, the land landscape and the environment in, in Washington that allowed for this bill to, to get through was lawmakers coming from states where this stuff was happening. You, you referenced Texas, and I know you guys have been really busy in Texas, and they have done some great work there over the last decade to, to sort of begin to right-size their prison population. Did I, did I hear you right to say that the lawmakers coming out of a place like Texas are now you know, able and, in fact, expected to address issues like this when you would think it would almost be um, you know, the reverse, that, that policy would flow downhill from the Fed. You, you, you seem to indicate that maybe it's the opposite. Is it, did I hear you right? Yeah, no, it is opposite. You're exactly right. <clears throat> Excuse me. I mean, the whole mess that's well, I call it a mess. People, you know, the, 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 um, the criminal justice bills that came out of the Bush administration, the Clinton administration, where we made it more punitive, longer sentences, they weren't based on data. They weren't based on any evidence based on just who could be tough for our crime. And what we've seen, and you know, then you had the, the Clinton bill, which again was bipartisan, both left and right were on board with it. It was a Democrat president at the time. And what they did there was they took away all the Pell Grants, all the programmatic activity in prison, because we we're going to be tough on crime. Um, so what we've seen, though, is the states reverse that trend. The states first followed the federal system because a lot of them got money from it and had to. But then over time, the state started to reform their own systems. And what this gets back to is a governor and a state legislator by large, a lot of them are required to meet their budgets. They can't just print money like we do at the federal level. And what we've seen is people come in and they look at their budgets, the, the, the legislators, uh, governors, and they see what they're spending their money on. And they look at the disproportionate amount they're spending on corrections. And then they start to peel back those numbers. And that leads to the reforms. As I like to say, people, and this is both red states and blue states, people um, come in into office and they look at criminal justice reform. They come in for the savings, but they stay for the salvation because <laughs> there's such great stories there. Uh, and in particular, if you look at someone like Nathan Deal, uh, who's hardcore rock rib conservative, but probably, if not the best, among the best governors that have, have existed on criminal justice reform. And he gets up, I've seen him speak three or four times. He weeps every time he talks about it how they've transformed their criminal justice system with more to go, keeping people out, getting them educated, you know, keeping families together. So it's really good stuff. And it's kind of the, you know, it, we've come a real long way from the Willie Horton era. Right. And I know there are still some in the Senate um, who try to, you know, basically traffic <laughs> in that, the Willie Horton stuff. It didn't work this time. In fact, in Arkansas, um, the delegation, other than Tom Cotton, every single one of the people in the Arkansas congressional delegation voted for the first step act. Wow. Yeah. I wasn't going to say his name, but you did. <laughs> Just across the river from and us. Well, they do more. And in <laughs> fact, you know, they, we're, we're talking about prison reform in Arkansas and at the federal level, uh, they're going to have these earned time credits for low level and minimal risk people, for low and minimal risk. And they have to have this, we're going to have a, a data driven approach to that or risk and needs assessment, et cetera. And that's great, um, you know, and, and, and it doesn't lead to anyone getting any sentence less than they have now at the federal level. All it does is allow certain people who meet those criteria to get home confinement or a halfway house for part of their sentence. 
in Arkansas, in Arkansas, they have earned time credits um, for people um, who have all types of sentences. So everybody except people with death sentences and life sentences can access earned time credits in Arkansas, in the state of Arkansas, in their state system. And some of them can get up to 50% off their entire sentence because of it. So the state isn't even following what yeah. you know yeah. Senator Cotton was throwing out there either. I mean, yeah. That's good. Going forward, hopefully we're just going to be able to show more and more this is what keeps people safer, keeps families together, makes law enforcement safer, saves a lot of money that you could then use on schools and roads and mental health treatment and all the things that go wanting because we've spent so much over the past 40 years on building prisons and jails and locking people up. Yeah. I certainly don't want to minimize the first step back, but I do want to talk uh, about a couple more things before we let you go. And and, and one, and I'll ask, sure. I'll, I'll let you close us out by talking about it is, is, you know, what's next. This is intentionally called the first step back. And I'd like to hear you talk about what, uh, what Coke industries in particular has, has to say about the next steps and that conversation moving forward. But first I, I've heard you in other interviews, talk a little bit about some of the other areas. And you mentioned money bail earlier uh, in that system. But yeah. uh, one area that I, I've heard you talk a little bit about are, are prosecutors and, and, one you know place in this system where there is room for a lot of improvement and, and, a, and a much different type of approach to crime and punishment is within prosecutors' offices. They wield a great amount of power. We've done whole episodes on this podcast about it, and, and it is a it is a significant um, uh, barrier to, to real reform in states and local uh, areas like Memphis, Tennessee, for instance. So, I'd like to hear you talk about uh, about that barrier and how, uh, if if at all, you're uh, allies are, are going about reforming how we prosecute in the criminal justice system. And then close us out by talking yeah, about no. what's next, just generally. Sure. Well, prosecutorial reform is important. And I think if, if you if you ask someone, you know, who if they know who their <clears throat> governor is, who their senator is, who their members of Congress are, who their mayor is or whatever, they can name that. But a lot of people can't name who their local district attorney is or who their county attorney is. And they, those people have more power over these jurisdictions than anybody else. And, they, and we've decided, and this was uh, back in, again, the 80s and 90s, that we um, wanted to give prosecutors more power and take it away from judges. That's what's happened. And I think we're starting to see that get pulled back, and it needs to be pulled back. And no disrespect to prosecutors. They're an essential part of our system. They have very difficult jobs. I think the overwhelming majority, overwhelming majority do the right thing, but they have way too much power. And what they become, and that's why we don't have a trial, criminal trial system anymore. We have a plea bargain system. They have become both prosecutor, judge, jury, and execution. And that's what's led to a lot of these sentences like Alice Johnson's. Alice Johnson didn't need to be in prison for probably more than the three to five years they were going to charge if they offered her in the plea bargain. But then once you you know, defend yourself, go to trial, have your constitutional right. They basically then punish you for that. And they have the ability to do it. There's someone uh, from Memphis right now, a guy named Chris Young, who got a life sentence, three strikes and you're out life sentence at the federal level, which is one of the reforms that will go away. You won't get a life sentence for the third time you commit a, um, a crime at the federal level anymore, depending on the crime. But Chris Young is from Tennessee, had two minor crack possession um, um, arrest when he was younger. Then he was also at the scene of a, of a drug ring being pulled down by the federal authorities. They offered him a plea bargain. He said, no, he went to, he went to prison. Everyone, excuse me, he went to trial like is again, his, his right is his right. 
before trial, the prosecutor filed for the three strikes and you're out because he had the two prior minor felonies in, in the state level. He ended up in prison now for the rest of his life. We're hopeful he gets out on clemency. We're working hard on clemency for him and others. But that's an unjust system. And we need to change these laws as we prosecutors in our system for sure. But they shouldn't be the center of gravity for it. Right. It should be really, you know, to be focused on crime victims, the defendants, and then the judge and the jury. And then the, both the, the prosecutor and the defense attorney, they're partisans. They're, 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 you know, they're, they're not unbiased situation. So that needs to happen. It's happened at the state levels real quickly. Cook County, Kim Fox, who has come, you know, she, she's from Chicago. She's not reforming uh, uh, the city of Chicago, the way they do things there in a much more redemptive way, a much more common sense way. She in many other places, including Philadelphia. Larry Krasner is doing a lot of good work up there. It's changing the way prosecutors work. It's about public safety and making communities better. It's not just about locking people up and throwing away the key. Yeah. Then you asked about what's next for the second steps. There's so many different second steps. One of them is going to be clemency reform at the federal level. That really needs to happen. Um, that's something that the president can do. Our, his powers as a president. Um, he doesn't have to run all these different clemency um, um, requests through the Department of Justice. That's something that's just 20 years. Uh, the Department of Justice should have some role in that. But asking them to say whether someone should get clemency, it's that, like asking uh, the fox whether they should let the hen out of the hen house. <laughs> we know what the answer is going to be. Yeah. Um, I think there needs to be bail reform at, the, at all levels. Federal bail system is probably better than others. But any, the whole idea of cash bail, I'm not saying there shouldn't be any, but it shouldn't be based on resources. The Eighth Amendment itself is very clear on that. It says that you know um, bail is allowed, but it shouldn't be excessive. So it's not an endorsement. Um, bail. It's saying that, look, this is something that's been abused. It was abused back in the countries that our founding fathers came from, locking people up for long times and making them pay money to get out. It's unjust unless they're a threat to public safety. It should be based on public safety and risk, not on resources. Um, there's also a need for more sentencing reform. We need to do more with our indigent, indigent defense programs. I don't know what it's like in Tennessee, but in a lot of places, if you have a Sixth Amendment right, obviously right. in the Constitution, to a lawyer if you're accused of a crime by the government. That is violated a lot of places every day because there's no resources involved. We That's need right. to fix that system. We need to get rid of a lot of the collateral consequences. Uh, we need to basically have a situation that, generally speaking, when people pay their debt to society, they should get all their rights back unless there's a reason not to give them back from a public safety perspective. And there could be many reasons for that. But right now, we basically say you can't do anything, regardless of your crime. And we need to make it easier for people who are really trying to get a second chance to be able to get jobs and housing, um, educate. Also, need to at some point um, uh, make make it easier for people to get expungement, automatic expungement, particularly for low-level offenders. And part of the problem in our criminal justice system, whether you look at asset forfeiture, bad practices, um, fees and fines, then expungement. People make a lot of money off the criminal justice system, and that's wrong. We make the ability for someone to get uh, an expunged record really simple. It should be automatic. It should just go away after a certain number of years based on the crime. Um, that, that's my point. Of, uh, that, that's at least my belief. If people keep their nose clean and do the right thing, why should they be reminded forever, every day for the rest of their life, about the worst thing that ever happened to them? It's just not just. It's not fair. It ends up being self-defeating yeah. because it ends up people can't get jobs. Um, and then they go back to the ways they that led them to prison in the first place. So it doesn't do any of us any good to do that. Well, all excellent uh, 
excellent places to move toward after uh, after this uh, goes into effect. And uh, I really appreciate you taking the time, Mark, to to give us your insight and to kind of lay it out at this level. We're uh, often talking about local and state uh, efforts. It was really really good to hear someone with uh, so much information and knowledge and experience in the in the federal system. So thanks for joining us today and and sharing uh, all of this with us. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, have a happy new year. That was Mark Holden, General Counsel for Coke Industries, in conversation and on the permanent record. My thanks to Mark for taking time out during the holidays to talk with us. Special thanks to our old friend Carrie Hayes for producing this episode. And as always, thanks to Carla and Gilworth at the OAM Network for their support of the podcasting community in Memphis. Check out some of their shows at theoamnetwork.com. Jeff Hewlett wrote and performs She Got Gone, original theme music for the permanent record. His newest album, Around These Parts, is out now. Look for Jeff out and about and pick up a copy for yourself. It's great. I have one. I'm Josh Spickler, and this is The Permanent Record, a production of Just City. Learn more about our work at justcity.org and follow us on Facebook and Twitter at JustCity901. Make sure you're subscribing to The Permanent Record somewhere, including Spotify, where you can find The Permanent Record now. Follow us, leave us a like and a rating. It really helps. In a Just City, we listen and we speak up. Our thanks to you for doing both. TheOAMNetwork.com. Power to the podcast.